0: Well, this morning we continue in our series, uh, Clean Slate. We began it a couple of weeks ago, and I would encourage you, if you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, we just covered some very foundational things in the series. We talked about repentance and we talked about its ongoing effect in our lives, and if you weren't with us, I would encourage you at some point this week to go back and listen to the podcast. There's some things we covered that carry forward through the rest of this series. But the focus of the series is, is a clean slate, understanding repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And as I'd mentioned at the outset, the goal is not to necessarily cover those topics exhaustively so that we can leave with note pages full of information and, and a lot of head knowledge, but rather our goal is, as James 1.22 tells us, is to take God's Word and to put it into action. I really believe that when we focus on On just intake of biblical application or intake of of spiritual wisdom, what God gives us, if we focus on just intake without the outworking of it, what the Bible tells us is that becomes a very dangerous place for an individual to live, that it's deceptive, that uh, that it's just a dangerous place. And so the goal is not so much to cover these topics exhaustively, but rather to look at some practical ways to apply them and put them into action in our lives. Well, this morning, I'd like to look at another topic that I think intersects all of the things that we're talking about, specifically repentance, forgiveness, restoration, and that is the topic of grace. Uh, Not just to talk about the topic of grace, but rather to talk about the ongoing effect of grace in our lives. See, I think many times for a Christian, we can think about, if you're a Christian here... We can think about grace, and we can talk. We can think about what grace is, what grace looks like, what that, um, how that works in our lives. And if you're, if you've been around church, or you've been around Christianity, or if you've had someone talk with you about it, when grace comes up, usually there's one verse that more times than not will point to, to understand grace, and that is found in Ephesians chapter two. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. It says, "For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith." And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So when we read about grace or we talk about grace in the Bible, we see passages like Ephesians 2 that make it very clear. Grace is God's work for us. You don't work for grace. Um, That it's his effort towards us. It's his gift towards us. But sometimes, and that's completely true, that's completely true, but sometimes when we talk about grace in the Christian context, we talk about grace in the life of the believer, sometimes we can make the mistake of picturing grace as being this, this active thing that God does and there's a passive, there's, it's passive on our part, there's nothing we do for that and, and, and earning that, that's very much right, that's what that passage is talking about. But to understand truly what the Bible describes as grace and what the Bible defines as grace and and talks about grace in our lives is that grace is not passive by way of our responsibility. That God is very active in his work of grace and in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And Ephesians goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit takes the work of Jesus and the grace that he's exhibited on the cross uh, on our behalf and that he then applies that and works that out into our lives. And so we see that, that grace is something that God does. It's very active. But then as a follower of Jesus Christ, when it comes to God's grace in our lives, we also have an active role and an active part in understanding it. One of the things that I said about repentance a couple of weeks ago is I said, if you're, if you're not different after repenting, then it's not been repentance. And the truth would be that that statement is also true when it comes to grace. If you're not different after receiving grace, then there's a good chance it hasn't been grace. It's realizing that God's grace brings change. It brings freedom. It brings transformation. It brings a whole new way of life with that. Um, To help you understand that, I want to look at two passages this morning. One is found in uh, John chapter 5. I want to look at a story. We've looked at, I think a few years ago, this story, just in a different context, but the story of Jesus healing the man, the pool of Bethesda found in John 5, and then we'll end up in Titus uh, chapter 2 to look a little bit more about understanding, having a proper understanding of what God's grace looks like, what it, how it uh, impacts our lives. But when you, as you turn there to John chapter 5, I've, I've shared this uh, many times before, but growing up in Alaska, we have a lot of just things that in the summer I look forward to doing. Um, whether it be just I enjoyed long hours of daylight, playing basketball, playing sports with friends. But one of the other things that I look forward to doing in the summer was um, was fishing. I loved going salmon fishing, um, and just my with my dad, he knew all of the different places, the back holes to go to. would go and we'd just would spend the day salmon fishing, and then with the long daylight, we would. You would go, we'd leave late at night, we'd go find the, the hole that we'd go fishing at, and you, would, you, could, you could catch three salmon a day. So we would hike back to where we would go fishing, and we would fish up till midnight, and again, it's daylight like it is outside, we'd fish up to midnight, catch your three, you'd wait until midnight came, and then at 12.01, you'd catch three more, and then you could head home. So you really got two days worth of fishing on one fishing trip. Uh, but we just loved going fishing, and one of the things that, uh, that my dad was just great at is that being a local growing up, he knew all the places to go, and really, I think most of the people, they knew the places to go where the tourists don't. You know where to go, so it's not going to be wall-to-wall crazy fishing. Has anybody ever gone to Alaska to try salmon fishing? Anybody? There's a couple. I thought there'd be a few more hands. I've seen a few hands. Um, in Alaska, if you're a local, we come up with a phrase for people like you coming to visit in Alaska to fish. And the phrase is combat fishing, because we could go for for those who were residents of Alaska. You could go to the to the store and you could get a fishing license, and it was relatively cheap. It wasn't very much, but for a tourist, someone who was from out of state who would want to come and go salmon fishing, they, the the license cost much more, maybe two three times as much. And then they would go and they would invest the money in the gear and all the things that they would go and do. And so we'd go to places. If ever you went to a place that was kind of the tourist place for fishing, there was one in Anchorage, it's called Russian River. If you've ever been there, those who've gone fishing probably in Alaska probably have been taken or have heard of Russian River. When you go there, you, you begin to understand why it's called combat fishing. It's just people are wall to wall uh, trying to catch a, a fish as it swims through the small narrow gap between a, a crowd of people standing on one side and a crowd of people standing on the other. I've seen it so bad where there's people standing shoulder to shoulder just snug trying to cast their their lure to fish and then there's a line of people behind them waiting for them to get out of line to get in line and get in a space to fish. I've seen people get caught in the head with fishing lures, in the nose, in the ears, all sorts of things. Um, It's just crazy. So that's why we call it combat fishing. And that's why we would not go fish there. Um, but we, we would get you get a picture. Of, you get a picture of just this mass of humanity that would crowd in around this body of water, with a hope and in the intent of catching a fish. Well, that picture of the massive humanity trying to get one thing is very similar to what we see in John chapter five in the story that we're going to look at this morning. John chapter five, beginning in verse number one. This is a story of Jesus healing a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Let's look at this together. John chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, is a pool which in the Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, he asked him, "Do you want to get well?" Now, I'll look at different translations and, and reading different passages, and I would imagine for those reading this morning, whether you're reading online in U Version or you have your, your printed copy of Scripture with you. You may have a different translation than the one I'm reading, and I would encourage you, find a translation that fits with your understanding and fits with just your your time with God and go with it. But sometimes different translations should use different words to help and gain an understanding. And in the King James Version right here, where Jesus says, do you want to get well? He says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made complete? Do you want to be made whole? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So the story that we've just read with Jesus healing this man, um, if you'll notice one of the things in verse uh, verse 8 where Jesus says to the man, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. If you'll notice what Jesus says as well as what he doesn't say. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk, which is not something the man was accustomed to doing. What Jesus did not say was be healed. And we'll talk about that um, in just a second. But I just want you to notice the difference in that, those words and I believe the significance of those in this story. But when, we, when you read the story and what we've looked at here, if you have, again, depending on your translation, depending what you look at, you may have noticed that in some translations there is no verse 4. Um, in mine, verse four is in the footnotes uh, of on the page, and it, it's verse four. It says this: speaking of the paralyzed, and it says, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, to understand if it's not included in the orig- in the, the text itself it's being set aside in some translations because there is some debate as to if that, that verse was in the original uh, scripture as it was given. And just to, to be safe this morning, so you know this morning, there's no doctrine that hangs on that verse. There's, there's no um, great debate that sits over it. It's just recognized that in the original transcripts, the original copies, there's a good chance that that verse was not included. And so what would happen is when when scripture was translated and and copied and passed along, they couldn't just run it through a printing press. Someone would sit there and take word for word and translate it over. And so what, what probably one of the copyists did, what most think could have happened, is that one of the copyists was trying to give explanation as to why you would have so many people gathered in around this pool, and it was probably a custom people knew about, others knew about, but as, as the gospel, the years between when the gospel was written and the generations continued forward... Somewhere along the way, a copyist thought this would be helpful to insert why people were gathered around this pool. So just to give explanation, in case you're wondering why verse 4 uh, may not, in, depending what translation you have, why it may not be uh, there. And the, tra- and the tradition was that an angel would come down from heaven, an unseen angel would come down from heaven, would stir the waters, and the first one who was sick gathered around the pool would slip into the water and then would be healed. Now, growing up, I've grown up in church, I've, I've been around church all my life. This story, that as we've read, I have, when I read it, my mind often goes to a different a picture that I would see, whether it be, um, I can remember sitting through Sunday school and with the aid of flannel graphs, I'd have this amazing picture just put out in front of you of what would take place, or even with uh, children's Bibles growing up, you'd have all of these illustrated pictures. And in most of the pictures, this pool that Jesus is visiting this, this day and he's visiting this man Most of the pictures I remember painted a picture of Jesus in a nice, long, flowing white robe. People lying just casually around the pool, almost like they're reclining poolside um, just at a a resort or somewhere in the summer. Not massive crowd, but a handful of people gathered around. And uh, you get the picture, the, the, the pool itself was crystal clear blue, kind of looked like the pool in someone's backyard. That was usually the picture that I got when, I, when this story was read and the flannel graphs were used or what other pictures were used to help in the aid of that. But reality tells us that that is f- a far cry from where it actually was. The real picture that, that we give, most historians would tell you that this pool that Jesus is visiting, where this man is at, and where Jesus encounters this man... Most historians would tell you this pool is actually about the size of a football field, to tell you the, the ma- massive amounts of people who would come and would gather in around the pool. And then it would tell us, they'd tell you that, that hundreds if not thousands would gather in around this pool, waiting, hoping to possibly be the one who would get into the water right when it was stirred and be healed. Now, it could very well even have been not just the, the invalid who is there, the people who were sick, but rather family members caring loved ones would come and they would be there as well, hoping and being able to perhaps even aid their loved one into into the water, into uh, being being healed. And so it really, rather than having this nice, picturesque, reclined picture, really it would be more like Black Friday at Target. Just this, this crazy mass of people trying to get into the water at the same time, hoping to be the one. Now, when you, when you look at this, there's a few things about this man that, um, that we, can, we can understand from the story. First is found in verse 3. It says here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind the lame and the paralyzed. The first we know regarding this man is that he was he was one among many. He was one among many with needs there. He was one among many gathered in hundreds if not thousands gathered in around this pool hoping to be the one to get healed. Another thing we can look at, in verse 13, it says, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Not only was there a mass of individuals needing healing, but there was a mass of spectators, there was a mass of people watching, so Jesus could easily slip away into the crowd without being seen, because there was lots of people watching, lots of people around. And so I find it interesting, the statement the man makes. We have this crowd of people there to be healed, A crowd of people watching or assisting or whatever else they're doing there but then the man can make this statement he says sir I have no one to help me in verse verse 7 he says I'm in this crowd but I'm all alone I'm in this crowd of people but I have no one uh, who cares and I would just encourage you kind of as a side note this morning in this story you could be sitting here this morning in this room and you could be sitting alone you could feel like you're all alone. You could feel like your, your problems, your challenges, your difficulties are lost on the radar to God with everything else that, that is going on in the world, every other challenge and problem you know that other people are having. But be encouraged, if for nothing else this morning, the story reminds you that God always sees and God always cares, that Jesus came to this man and engaged the conversation that led to his healing, that Jesus always sees, and it's a reminder that you're never alone. But what I see in the story as Jesus comes and Jesus approaches this man, the man is sitting, I'd imagine, from all of the years of being there and trying to get into the water, I'm sure there's been many times where maybe he wasn't the first one in, maybe he was the second one in or the third one in or half a second too late and getting into the water and continues to miss out on his healing, continues to miss out on his freedom and 38 years have passed where he's hoping and trying, desiring and praying to be the one in and for 38 years, Nothing has changed. He 's lived in the same cycle to get up every morning, find a way, find assistance, find someone who will have compassion enough to help get him to the pool, and then he'll sit by the pool all day, hoping to be the one in i'm sure there's been mornings he's come even he 's come early at the crack of dawn, hoping to get the best seat possible. perhaps he would go and he would sit where the person from the day before had been healed, hoping that perhaps that vantage point, that spot, that place would allow him to be the first one into the water, and day after day would come and go without anything changing he would arrive at the pool sick he would leave the pool sick he would arrive at the pool uh, crippled he would leave the pool crippled day after day for 38 years nothing changed and so one day as he's standing there and he's peering into the pool realizing just one glance away could cost him the half a second he needs to slip into the water and be healed he's there staring at the pool he then hears a voice come up behind him and say do you want to get well I would imagine somewhere in there, this man is thinking, is that person talking to me? Perhaps he's he's even thinking, sir, whoever you are, why would I be sitting at the edge of this pool ready to to throw myself into the water at the moment's notice when the water is stirred? What what kind of question really is that? But instead, this man answers Jesus, and, and I want you to picture it because he has no one to help him in. He knows that his life will forever be changed if he's the first one into the water, so I would imagine that while he's, he's there waiting at the water and he's answering Jesus, he does not turn from looking at the pool to look at Jesus or answer him. He does not change his, 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 the fixing of his, his gaze from the water to Jesus. Rather, he, he answers Jesus while he's still staring into the water. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he says, I'm all alone. I've been living in this cycle for 38 years. I'm not willing to spare a glance that could cost me what I need. And so whoever you are who's talking to me, I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. I don't have a way out. My only hope is being the first one into this water. And so Jesus gives him Jesus's question, do you want to get well? Well, or do you want to be made whole? I really believe that Jesus' Jesus's statement to this man is really an invitation. It's an invitation to a whole new, different lifestyle that he has not had for at least 38 years. He very well could have been born crippled, we don't know if he was crippled. We don't know how old this man was, but any, we don't really know anything about him other than that he's been crippled for 38 years. And so when Jesus says, would you like to be made whole, it really is an invitation to a whole different lifestyle. And the thing about this story that I think we can easily miss, a detail that as we read it through dozens of times, that there's a, this story is, I really believe, an intersection, and it's, a, it's, a, it's the meeting place in this man's life between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I want you to see it, and it's found in verses 8 and 9. I've got it on the screen for you to be able to see. Verses 8 and 9, can you put that on the screen for me? So then Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. And then if you can go to verse nine, here it is. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now the spot I want you to see in this verse that I think we can miss is it's the space between verses eight and verse nine. The space between verses eight and and nine. And you might think, well, what does this space matter? See, the space matters because that's where it, it shifted from divine sovereignty, divine intervention, to human responsibility. If you look in the story, as I said earlier, Jesus never says to him, be healed. Instead, rather, he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. In other words, what Jesus says to the man, he says, I want you to try to do something that you have not done for 38 years. I want you to try to to, to remember what it's like to step out. I want you to try to remember what it's like to have strength in your legs. I want you to try to remember what it's like to be able to walk on your own. And when Jesus, he didn't say be healed, but rather he said, if you could put that up one more time, he said, he said to get up, pick up your mat and walk. What I believe that in that moment, Jesus was offering him the healing, but then he had to make a choice to step out in it and practice what he'd just been given. See remember, this man has been sitting for 38 years. So his muscle mass and his legs are gone. He has no muscle, he has no strength, His legs would have at this point, if you've seen an individual who's not been able to walk for years upon years, or even has been born that way, this man's legs would most likely have been shriveled and even have turned inward by by lack of use for muscle and tendons and all of those things. And so they're they're really shriveled up underneath him. And so when Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk, the man could have magically waited and hoped that at some point Jesus was going to, to supernaturally take control of his legs and supernaturally forced himself to get up and to walk. And then all of a sudden, all of the muscle mass and the strength and the ability to get up and to stand and walk would have just rushed into his legs. But instead, I really believe because as Jesus says, get up and pick up your mat and walk, that this man had to make a choice. He said, am I willing to do something different with what I've just been offered and experience a whole new lifestyle that I've never had before? And so as this man begins to, he's, he's laying on the floor, he's laying on the ground, as he begins to put into action the freedom and the healing that Jesus has just given him, I would imagine the creative miracle left people breathless. That this man is there and all of a sudden as he takes a, a, takes a, a, a frail uh, leg with no muscle, no strength, that's turned inwardly. As he begins to try to move something, all of a sudden it's like this leg begins to grow and muscle mass begins to fill the bones and strength is there. And all of a sudden his leg begins to stand out straight. And then he, he stands up on that one leg and as he does, the second leg begins to just fill with, with strength and muscle mass, mass in the bones. And the legs begin to stretch out. And before long he's standing there And I would imagine for the first time in 38 years or more, he's looking at legs, perhaps the first time in his life, he's looking at legs that he's never had before. That there's a point where Jesus is offering him something, and he has to make a choice to step out into it. He has to make a choice to put what Jesus is giving him into action. He really had to decide to do something. Now, can you imagine if Jesus had healed him, but he never tried to walk? Imagine how different the story would be. Had Jesus healed him, but he never tried to walk in it. He never tried to take a step in it. Rather, he was, he, Jesus had healed him, but he continued to lay on the mat, continued to hope to get in the water, continued to hope that someone else would help him get home later at the end of the day. And I look at the story of this man in, in John chapter 5, and when I think about grace, I, I see that story really playing out in our lives so often. That God in His grace, He extends to us a whole new life. He extends to us a whole new freedom. A life that's free from sin. A life that's free from the reign of sin. And he extends this to us. But but do we like the man never make a choice, unlike the man, make a choice to stand up and put into action what he's giving us? See, many times over the years in just Christian ministry and pastoral ministry, as I'll talk with individuals. I kind of want to draw out a little bit of what I'll see with individuals as they'll come and we'll just talk about struggles, talk about life. Um, and so kind of a combination. And I think I've, driv- I've driven this out once, uh, maybe five, six years ago for you, for those who've been with us for a number of years. Um, but just talking with people, struggles of life, things I've been reading, um, is kind of this, there's an example that I want to show you, is that if this is, this is you, or I'm going to get a different color. This one's a little bit, a little bit too, too light. This is you. And you're kind of just living your life. And most often, this becomes the journey. This is your journey of life. This is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is your journey of becoming like Christ. This is a life, just living a life centered on, on Christ. And somewhere along the way in your journey, some sort of sin issue, some sort of struggle comes in. And begins to be a hindrance, begins to be a barrier. So the sin issue will come in, the struggle will come in, and so then oftentimes what I'll see played out and I'll see lived out is an individual will come, they'll come to this challenge, they'll try to deal with it, and then they'll 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 go into this cycle, and they'll come right back, and they're right at this point again as they they come right back to this cycle. The, the desire is to be free from sin, the desire is to break free, and then as they continue on in their cycle again, there's promises made, desires made, resolutions made, all sorts of things that are made in life, and then they'll hit the same challenge again and they'll continue in the cycle again. And then they'll restart again, I'm, this time I'm going to be different, this time the, the change is going to be broken, this time I'm going to be, I'm going to live for Christ, this time I'm going to say, I'm going to do all the right things. And then they hit the point again, and the cycle again. And usually what often happens is that somewhere in this cycle, as I talk with individuals, somewhere at this point, there's the doubt of, am I even a believer anymore? Am I even a Christian? Do I even serve Christ? Do I even love Christ? And then as they come back around, this time I'm going to do it, I'm going to break free, I'm going to be different, and they keep living in this cycle. Um, Christian author John Owen, he says that most people most people remain a stranger to themselves and the struggles that they face. And so because of that, they never develop into the Christian lifestyle that God calls them for. And he goes on to say that we should take note of where sin is strong and grace is weak in our lives. To recognize, where's, where are the struggles? Where do I need the freedom in? Where do I need God's grace to bring freedom, to bring healing, to bring deliverance? And so here's a, there's a few things out of this that I just want to point out to you is that when we look at this model, many times one of the purposes of sin, the way the enemy works, we've talked about sin a couple of weeks ago, so again, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. One of the, the two, two purposes of sin is number one is to separate you from Christ. And if he can't separate you from Christ, then the second thing he wants to do is to, is to distort the purpose of grace. It's to distort the work of God, the grace within you. And sometimes when we live in a model like this, we begin to think that God's grace is a pardon or a forgiveness that's going to be given to us again when we come back around again and come back around again. And many times when we, when individuals live in this cycle, this cycle becomes the definition of grace that there's a forgiveness waiting to happen when I come back around and God will forgive me again and he's gonna give me strength again and we kind of live in that cycle and that becomes a definition of grace. And I think more importantly, unfortunately for many, this becomes the definition of the Christian life, continuing to live in the same cycle, the same struggle, the same challenge again and again. And I think the the greater danger is that this model of what I've just drawn out for you, this model does not fit the biblical model of what God desires for the follower of Jesus Christ. This is not the picture of his intent or his design or his desire for your life. I want to just give you a few verses to think about. One is found in 1 John 3.6. In 1 John 3.6, John, John was Jesus had uh, his disciples, and out of all of his disciples, he then had twelve who were close to him, and then out of the twelve, he had three who were really close to him, and out of the three, he had one who was super close to him. And the one who was that one who was super close to him, his name was John. And John wrote, uh, John wrote a few books in the Bible. One is in, in 1 John. And in 1 John 3 6, John says this. He says, No one who lives in him continues to sin. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He says, No one who continues to live in a cycle of sin is living in a life that's reflective of relationship with God. He goes on to say in First John, he goes on to say in First John 1, he says the sign of our relationship with God is our willingness to bring our struggles to God, a willingness to bring our challenges to him. But then he goes on to say is the outworking of bringing our challenge to him is that we choose to forsake sin and we choose to walk differently. That there may be a time where sin resurfaces, but we don't live in a, psych, a cyclic pattern of sin in our lives. And to other believers, the Apostle Paul wrote for, to believers living in Rome. Rome was kind of the, the capital of that culture and really kind of the, the boiling pot of all the things that we see later addressed in the New Testament and, and, and Ephesians and Colossians. And Rome was kind of that, that center point of all of that. And to believers living in Rome, look what the Apostle Paul writes about regarding their relation to sin in John chapter, or, uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see that? He says, we may live a new life. He doesn't say that we'll recycle back through the same struggles again and again. He says, we'll live a different life. We'll live a changed life. We'll live a transformed life. Look, Reading on in Romans chapter six, verses 11 through 14, he says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. "'Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body "'so that you obey its evil desires. "'Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument, "'or the translation would be as a weapon of wickedness, "'but rather offer yourselves to God "'as those who have been brought from death to life, "'and offer every part of of yourself to him "'as an instrument or as a weapon of righteousness. "'For sin shall no longer be your master.'" Because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, if you can keep that verse on the screen for just a second. He says, sin will no longer be your master because you're not living according to sin, you're living according to grace. Do you see where when we we allow this model to fit with what we think about and define grace that is conflicting with what the Bible, with what God tells us that a life covered by grace is. So he says that we're not to allow sin to dominate our lives. We're not to continue to live in the cycle of sin again and again. As I said, this really... For those who live in the cycle, and if you're there, I'm not trying to share this by way of, of any type of condemnation or shame upon you, but rather sometimes seeing it drawn out helps be, us be confronted with the, the truth of what God's Word, God's perspective of life is for you. And so when it comes to the Christian model, the Christian design that God gives us according to, to how he sees life to be lived, and this is really the, the entire Romans 6 experience, I would encourage you, this afternoon or tomorrow morning in your devotions and quiet time with God, if you go on a jog and you listen to scripture in the morning, whatever it is, listen to Romans 6. Listen to Romans 6 in light of what we're talking about this morning. The Romans 6 model that, that we're given is that a same individual living, of follow, following, and pursuing Jesus Christ is, is living and pursuing Christ, living life, that as they're going, when a challenge comes, when a sin issue comes in, whatever that might be, that as they go, they might face it, they might, they might deal with it and come back, but ultimately, through Christ, this is no longer an issue. So according to what the Bible would show, really, this becomes an issue. It's really we're here, and sin is no longer intended to influence In other words, we live above the influence of sin. That's what Romans 6 tells us. We live above the influence and the pull of sin in our lives. So it influences us when we forget that it's no longer meant to be a part of our lives, and we allow it to insert itself into our life and to become a controlling point. Does that make sense? So it's a choice to allow the work of Christ and the grace of Christ to transform us and to bring us to this place. In Romans chapter six, one of the things it tells us in Romans 6. Um, in fact, you, I think we have Romans 6:22 on the slide, don't we? Romans chapter 6 verse 22. I think we have it there. There we do. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit reaps to ho- leads to reaps, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. It says, now that you have been, the, the, the cycle of sin has been severed in your life. A good way to think about it, now that sin has been evicted in your life, now that sin has been dethroned in your life, now that sin has been kicked out of your life, that the benefit of sin being evicted, sin being dethroned, sin being being thrown out, the benefit is that you now live a life devoted to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, Christ-likeness within you, the nature of the Holy Spirit in you, the purposes of God within you. It says the result is eternal life. The result is the destination that God has in store for you. So a very different picture, but sometimes we can, I think, make a mistake as we think about Christ and we think about following Christ and we think about living for him and the effect of grace in our lives. And sometimes I think we can fail to fully get the picture of what it's intended to, to look like. But when it comes to Romans 6, as I referenced Romans 6 earlier, the entire premise of Romans 6 is that sin is, sin's hold is broken in your life. And because sin's hold is broken in your life, grace continues, because grace broke it through Jesus Christ, grace continues to change and affect and transform our lives. And so three things I'd love to give you just quickly... Out of, out of Titus chapter 2, if you can turn there with me, Titus chapter 2, talking about grace and thinking about the effect of grace in your life, the effect of grace in our lives, I'd love to just share with you three things very quickly um, that the Bible tells us of how grace works, its ongoing effect in our lives when we, ex- when we experience the grace that's been extended to us through Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 2 talks about, the passage we looked at earlier. Three things about grace that I want you to see, but to understand it, look at with me in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 11. that God's grace actively does in our lives. The first one's found in verse number 11. God's grace frees us. God's grace frees you. His grace frees you from the cycle of sin. His grace frees you from the reign of shame. His grace frees you in in Hebrews, and we're gonna talk about clearing our conscience next week, but in, in Hebrews, twice, at least two different times, it says that God's grace is so powerful that it cleanses your conscience, that his grace is transformational in your life. His grace frees you. Look in verse number 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, that offers freedom, that offers deliverance, that God's grace frees you. In other words, his his grace, when it's extended into your life through Jesus Christ, is not just a cycle of forgiveness that's waiting to happen again and again. The the amazing thing about the grace of God in our lives is that when you do sin, when you do choose to sin, when you do choose to do something that's outside of God's design or pattern or desire for your life, the amazing thing about his grace is that he extends it to you and we, we, we're forgiven. But it's good to, it, the best thing to think about with grace is not to think about it as a, as a cycle of forgiveness or to think about grace as being a pardon that's waiting to happen. Rather than thinking of grace as being the pardon that's waiting to happen, the pardon, the the, the forgiveness is waiting to be extended. Rather, think about grace as being the key that unlocks the jail cell. It's not the pardon, it's the key that opens the cell. And really, it's both. That he not only forgives you, but he sets you free from the very thing that you've been struggling with, the very sin that's been controlling or dominating your life. Really, as we said in Romans, uh, Romans 6, that it's a picture that sin's reign ends. Sin's reign is over. It's done with. Um, and I think one of the, the best ways to think about it is that when we, when, when we moved to Pennsylvania, we moved here from Michigan, and it's it impossible to live in Pennsylvania and pretend we're still living in Michigan at the same time. That you have to, you we're all here in Pennsylvania. And when it comes to sin, for a follower of Jesus Christ to realize that you are completely free from sin, so you can't pretend to live as if you're still in sin at the same time. It's a very different picture. That you've been set completely free not partially free, you've been set completely free. Jesus completely healed the man in John chapter 5. He had to put it into action in his life to experience the, the benefit of that. You sent grace, God's grace has set you free from sin. So it's a choice to put it into action in our lives. Secondly, God's grace teaches and guides us how to live for him. Found in verse number 12. God's grace teaches us how and guides us how to live for him. Verse 12. God's grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That it teaches us the whole, the word that he uses for teaches here in verse 12 is that the whole, um, the whole word encompasses the whole dynamic of teaching. Not just instruction, but hands on instruction, guidance, correction, that is in all invested in, in guiding and teaching you, in recognizing to live a life that's consistent with. With the inward working of grace in you. It's, it's really inconsistent to think that I can ask for forgiveness and then continue to live in the same thing that I'm asking forgiveness for. That's inconsistent with, with the biblical model for forgiveness and freedom and grace. It's recognizing his grace that he's extended to us and the freedom that he's given us. And it's important to realize when it comes to, to God's grace in our lives, and as Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says, uh, it says that it teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions. So when it comes to God's grace in your life, his grace is, is anchored in God's nature. And because of his grace is anchored in his nature, it's going to place ethical demands upon your life that are expected to be lived out. Does that make sense? It's going to place ethical demands upon your life. In other words, you're going to have to say no to certain things that you used to say yes to. You're going to have to choose to, to not do certain things that you used to not have a problem doing before. It's a realization of the transformational work and grace of God in your lives. I can remember one um, college couple, and I, I may have talked, shared their story with you before, but one college couple probably uh, 20 years ago who gave their lives to Christ, both of them no church background, no biblical knowledge, just completely unchurched. And they, they came with a friend to our college group, ultimately both gave their lives to Christ, and God was doing a work in changing their lives, but they were both living together and doing everything that two individuals living together, not married, would be doing. And one time the two of them came to me and, and they said, We've been reading in God's Word and, and reading the Bible and beginning to understand that God's desire and His plan for all of our lives, and we've come to this, this part about that it's, that believers are not to be involved in sexual activity outside of marriage. And, uh, and they said, We never knew that. And they said, well, now you do. And so they, they took it and put it into action. They got separate places to live. And they 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 God's grace was changing them. It's one thing to say, well, God's forgiven me, and but now I see in scripture I'm not supposed to do this, but that's hard. That's inconvenient. We'll just have to come back to that later. That's not God's grace. God's grace brings change and transformation and he guides us to continue to live out the life that he has designed and intended for us. Third thing, last thing. In Titus chapter two, found in verse number 13, God's grace gives us a new purpose. His grace gives us a new focus. It gives you new direction. Uh, It gives you a new sense of understanding, a new new, uh, guidance in life, a new direction in life. Look in verse number 13. It's talking about God's grace at work in our lives. He says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and then verse fourteen, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In other words, that the focus shifts. It's no longer living for the now, it's now living for eternity. It's no longer living for the now, it's living for, for life with Jesus. It's no longer living for what works right now, but it's focused on what would please Jesus in the end. It's, it's living life for a very different purpose, a very different focus. I can remember um, when, my, when my kids were younger, specifically when my daughters were younger, just little infants, little ones, and they would, um, or toddlers, and I would run in the store, whether it be Target or Walmart or, or uh, some, just a, a grocery store or whatever, and sometimes they might have had five, six dollars left over from a birthday gift or a Christmas gift or something. And they would run in with me and we'd be getting whatever we needed to get and we're waiting in line. And at the registers around, and still today at most registers, there's uh, all of these little kind of cheap and easily accessible things, just trinkets hanging there. Kind of stuff you'd find at the dollar store. And there, a lot of them are just things you're going to waste your money on and, and within, a, within a day or later it'll be broken or forgotten or lost or something like that. And Many times I can remember that we're standing, and I, and I know the, the, the managers put it there to just drive parents nuts and ultimately get them to give in to get their kids quiet. I get that. I, I get the marketing strategy. Um, but I remember I'd stand there and, and our daughters would just be like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and maybe a dollar or two, and I have, I have this much left. And many times I'm like, that's just, that's just a waste of money. And no, you can't have it. It's just a waste of money. And then other times I'd be like, I'd give in. I'd be like, fine, you can, just, you can have it, you can take it, you can use it, whatever. And i uh, just kind of let them do their thing. And then later in life, later that week or later on, I remember times would come along that something that they wanted that was maybe a little more worthwhile of spending your money would come along on. And then they'd be a few dollars short because they had spent it on something that was cheap and easily accessible and, and, and had quickly perished. And I look at that model, and I look at, we can look at it and we can see it so clearly in kids, but perhaps we don't always see it so clearly in our own lives. Is that our world, the culture we live in, the culture is designed to lead your heart away from Christ. It's to lead your heart away from God. That's what the Bible tells us. In 1 John, it says that, that the culture is designed to lead you away from Christ. And... And I'm not saying there's not redeemable things in the culture or any of that. I'm just saying in the end, the heartbeat of the world, the heartbeat of the culture is to lead you away from Christ, is that our culture will continually offer you cheap and easily accessible substitutes, cheap and easily accessible pleasures to get you to focus on those things rather than to focus on the eternal and continued work of Christ in you. And when we choose to settle for the cheap and easily accessible things, we're compromising his work of grace. We're compromising the work of Christ in us. We're compromising everything that he is trying to do and developing his nature in you. I think sometimes it's, it's much like when we try to do both, and I'll see believers try to do both. It's much like a trapeze artist who is is performing and swinging between the different trapezes as they go, and you'll see different ones. I remember being at the circuses and different things, and you would see one who would hold on to the trapeze, and as the other one comes, there's a suspended point where they have to completely let go of one and grab onto the other. I don't know if you've ever seen a trapeze artist get stuck between the two. They grab one, and they never let go of the other. Before long, they lose momentum, and they're just kind of there, just hanging midair, And I think believers, many times we, we, we try to hold onto one and still grab onto Christ at the same time. But we have to realize that the transformational work of God's grace in your life involves you to release the things you've used to be in this world, the desires, the things you used to pull on, the things that used to pull on you, the the things that you've longed for. Your, your purpose is different. Your focus is different. Your desires are now being changed. And so it's a choice to completely release and to completely grab on to everything that Christ is doing in you, and Christ is guiding you to, and the work of his Holy Spirit in you, and the work of Christ's likeness and his holiness within you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Peter says this, and then we'll close with this. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says he encourages believers, believers who thought they were living in the end times, who thought Christ could be coming back at any moment, at any time, he tells believers, he says, continue to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, continue to grow in knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think for Peter to be telling that, Peter, again, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the inner three, for, G, for Peter to be telling believers that who thought they were living in the end times, thought Jesus could be coming back at any moment, for him to say, continue to grow and the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ tells me a couple things. Number one, it's a once-in-a-lifetime encounter that his grace changes us. Just like those who raised their hands during our time of worship this morning, God's grace is changing you. That was a response to his grace, his goodness, his love, his mercy being poured out upon you. And you recognize that things in your life weren't right with Christ and you responded. That's a once-in-a-lifetime response. But recognizing and growing in his grace is not just a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's an ongoing daily thing as we continue to align who we are with who he is and allowing his grace, his nature, his his character to be formed and shaped in us. That's grace. That's grace. Letting him do his work in us. will not you stand with me this morning? I want to open the front as a place to respond and a place to pray. And in just a second, the worship team is going to begin to sing and I'll just open it for those who want to come. But sometimes we can, if you've ever found yourself, you're praying, you say, God, I want to, just, you're praying over something and you're you're questioning, God, is this your will? Am I praying over your will? Am I praying over something that that you want to do, something you want in my life? And if you've ever had that question, you're just praying over some things like that. Just wondering, am I really praying over God's will? The Bible tells us, uh, John tells us, again, one of Jesus' closest disciples, John tells us that we can have confidence that when we pray in accordance with God's will, he hears us and he does it. That's, just, that's the assurance. When we pray in accordance with God's will, he hears us and he does it. Well, there's a few prayers that we can pray that we know with 100% assurance are always consistent with his will. When we pray that he would form his nature within us, that's consistent with his will. When we pray that he would help us to walk in a greater understanding of grace, that's consistent with his will. When we pray that he would break us free from sin and help us to see sin for what it is, that's consistent with his will. When we pray that he would renew our minds, Romans 12, that he would renew our minds and our hearts and our longings and our desires, that's consistent with his will. See, there are some things that we can pray for this morning in light of what we've just talked about that are 100% guaranteed prayers to be answered because they're consistent with his will. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to, they're going to lead us. And I just want to open the front as a place to respond for those who love to come that I just imagine, and, and perhaps you're one of those who gave your life to Christ earlier, or even as I've shared, you've wanted to make a decision to place your faith in Christ. You wanna come, find a place to pray. For others this morning, as I've talked and talked about what grace looks like, and perhaps it was even with what I've drawn out with what, what grace is not and what grace is, that you recognize in your life, God, there's, there's places in me and parts of me that, that need greater alignment. God, I need you to do a greater alignment in me. I need you to align me with more of who you are, more of who you're shaping for me to be. As the worship team leads us this morning and as they just sing out, I invite you, the front's open, come as a place to respond, a place for our hearts to be open, a place to pray in accordance with God's will. If you begin to come. as.